Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. We've talked about bullying a lot on this program. Talked to people who were bullied when they were kids. As adults, they still carry the, the pain with them. We've talked to parents of bullied children. We've talked to bullied kids. And we've talked to a bully. I remember we had a bully on, a bully on from Saskatchewan, and he, former bully, and he shared with us a story about having been a really nasty bully, and he changed his ways because of a specific incident that happened in his life. He had bullied a child so severely that even he was concerned, and the child didn't show up for school the next day and didn't show up for a number of days. And then they found out that the child was dead, and his great concern was that he'd caused the death. He hadn't, but it changed his life. He told us that story. But out of Florida came this story. I just want to read you a little bit, and then I'll talk to my guest. And we'll take some calls from you. In fact, we have two guests on this segment today. This is a story by Megan O'Matz, and I was in touch with Ms. Matz from the South Florida Sun Sentinel. She writes, in the aftermath of the Parkland massacre, some students with disabilities are being taunted or callously pegged by others as being the next school shooter, parents and experts say. Quote, there's been a lot of bullying going on in our schools, says Kelly Bush, a South Florida advocate for children with autism. I spoke with Ms. Bush as well. She was not able to join us, but she did underscore what, what has been written here. School and mental health records show that Nicholas Cruz, who killed 17 and wounded 17 more at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High on Valentine's Day, was reported to have numerous conditions, including autism and severe behavioral and emotional problems. Uh, slapping crews with an autistic label has increased the angst of parents of children with the neurological disorder who already struggle to foster acceptance and compassion for their children. Experts say some people with autism, especially children, may find it hard to communicate or to control their emotions. They can experience sensory overload or become frustrated when unable to express themselves and may become aggressive or irritated. Their outbursts, such as throwing a chair, occurs in flashes and typically are minor and over quickly premeditated acts of violence are not a symptom of autism. Yet Valerie Herskowitz of Jupiter, Florida, who has a grown son with autism, said she's heard from parents that some students have asked autistic children, are you going to kill us? So this bullying of autistic and otherwise disabled children in Florida schools, particularly after Parkland, is really, really disturbing, really disturbing. Rob Banfernet joins me. He's the co-founder and co-executive director of Bullying Canada, Inc. And I remember when you started Bullying Canada, Rob, and you've, come a, you've done a lot for the issue of bullying. You've helped out a, tremendously in this country. Thanks for joining us. Good afternoon, Roy. What do you make of this? Uh, are you surprised that kids in Florida are bullying disabled and autistic kids and asking them if they're going to be the next school shooters? That was concerning to me in a, in a number of ways. And am I surprised by it? No. Uh, it's not the first time I've heard of that happening. Um, it's it's something that uh, happened um, in incidents that we've had throughout the country as well. Um, and I, I think that uh, we need to to remember, as you said in your introduction, that uh, individuals with autism um, aren't likely to 
um, retaliate in this type of um, fashion, and, and that's something that we need to keep in mind. Um, so, no, I don't think that we have to to be worried that uh, just because somebody has autism that they're going to um, you know, do the same thing that's happened in Florida. No, I don't think that's the, 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 the concern. The concern is what happens to these kids who have autism and the disabled kids when they're being taunted by their classmates. The concern there is, um, you know, they're not getting, um, you know, the correct supports that they need um, to keep them safe, really. Um, you know, they're not they're not getting the accurate support in their school system uh, when they're being bullied. Um, you know, the fact that they're being taunted for one and, you know, they're not accurately getting help mm-hmm. uh, to get that addressed. Um, the when it comes to the United States and bullying, it's it's extremely difficult to measure. It's extremely difficult to deal with because each state has a different uh, way of dealing with it. Uh, each school has a different way. So there's no uh, easy uh, method or uh, policy to follow or anything like that. And um, it bothers me in the sense that um, you know. Most of these students are going to fall through the cracks. Um, I'm hoping uh, that none of these students are going to harm themselves. Um, I'm hoping that um, their parents are going to be made aware that they're being harassed at school and their parents are going to be able to step up and and go to school administration. Yeah, you know, I read some of the things that were said by a major player in the school administration in the area. Doesn't seem more, doesn't seem any better than the usual. Well, we'll... We'll look into it, and we'll talk to people, and we'll conduct a study, and then we'll act accordingly. Well, that's doing nothing. That's absolutely doing nothing. And will they do this study? Probably not. And if they do, it's going to be in 10 years before we see anything. Um, it's not doing anything right now. It's not helping the kids right now. And that's you know, they've done lots of studies. We don't generally see any changes from those, um, and we don't generally see anything from the studies because we don't generally see the studies. Um, so, uh, my, like I said, my initial concern with that is, are the students that are being affected getting the immediate help they need, as in you know, help tomorrow uh, uh-huh. or Tuesday, whenever they return to school, Monday, uh, are they getting the immediate help uh, because they're being targeted? Um, you know, so that's, that's the concern. And whereas they're not within Canada, it, there's no way of knowing that. And, and that's... That's the problem. Yeah, I didn't think we'd have answers here, but I mean, it's something that you and I both know. Everybody who has a child who's being bullied knows that come Tuesday morning, the kids who go back to school and they're incessantly bullied are going to have a hard time getting going again. They don't want to go to school because they know what's going to happen to them. The long weekend gives them a little bit of reprieve unless they're cyberbullied, but the issue issue is is prevalent in this country and elsewhere. Rob, let me also ask you about this. There have been... some of the survivors of the uh, of the school attack mm-hmm. have been attacked on social media themselves. Yep. As people have written, well, you bullied Nicholas Cruz, so you I'm, I'm paraphrasing, you bear some level of responsibility. What do you say to that? Um, to that, uh, there, there's no... That's cruel, evidence. isn't it? I mean, that's yeah, just cruel. It, it is. Um, there's... That's tricky. Now, the only thing I can relate it to is I know some people that have went through it in Canadian incidents, and 
um, they're still dealing with those effects, mm-hmm. um, and it's been you know multiple years since their particular incident. So they're going to be dealing with this for years and years and years to come. And um, the only thing that we can deal with going forward is, you know, they're, they're pushing for change, which I think is really important. And they, they need to continue to do so. And the fact that there's youth that are advocating for change within their country is great. And they need to, you know, keep that up. So uh, the fact that he is, um, you know, being labeled as a victim in this case i mean maybe he is maybe he wasn't that i mean that's besides the point at this point um i I think the most important part of this is how can we ensure that a this doesn't happen again and unfortunately it probably will which i mean is well it will because i mean there were so many opportunities to intercept and they didn't cruise and they didn't they were and i'm sure this is going on it has to be going on elsewhere as well, where the signs are obvious that there's going to be a problem, maybe not a school shooting, but there'll be an issue and it'll be serious and nobody is doing enough about it because they're frozen in place. They don't know what to do because they don't have any policies, or if they have policies, they're basically cover your behind policies. They write a policy that protects the staff and protects the, the, you know, the school and the school district, and then if there's a bullying situation, they refer to the policy and nothing gets done. So that's the concern, that the, certainly the concern that I have. Now, you also know that Nicholas Cruz has got supporters. He's got people who are putting money in his account in prison so he can get uh, items out of the commissary. He's getting love letters, and he's getting fan support. Uh, I, I can't publicly say on radio what I think about that. Yeah, I know. I know. You and I agree. But that happens every time uh-huh. there is somebody like him. There are those who, who, who climb on board to uh, to express support for them, which is frankly sick. What what's the most significant thing that you've accomplished that you've been able to accomplish at uh, bullying Canada as far as dealing with bullies in this country is concerned? And you dealt with bullying yourself before you formed the organ co formed the organization. I think the biggest thing we've we've been able to do so far is the amount of uh, individuals that have like I've heard from ninety year olds and ninety five and ninety six year olds that were bullied. Um, you know, when they were kids and um, we've gotten letters from them um, and expressed how, uh, you know, it's it's allowed them to finally move on from when they were bullied. And I mean, we're going back 70 years mm-hmm. and, you know, they're sending us a donation with this letter. And, nice. um, you know, that's the reason we do what we do, let alone, you know, the amount of kids we hear from on a daily basis and parents that we hear from on a daily basis. So, you know, that's why we do what we do. And, um, you know, it's the fact that we hear from kids that uh, have been able to, you know, when I'm on the phone with them, they can sigh of relief and know that they're finally able to get some help. Um, You know, that's why we do what we do. So uh, we've been doing it now for almost 13 years. So uh, it's, it's unfortunate that, you know, we, we have to do what we do, but, uh, you know, we've been able to do it this long and, uh, you know, kids have been reaching out for this long. So yeah, you've made that, a difference. Uh, we're here. Yeah, yeah Rob, sure. thank you. Thank you for the time. Good talking to you again. Thank you very much, Roy. Have a great day. All the best. Rob Ben Frenette, uh, co-founder, co-executive director of Bullying in Canada, Inc. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. I'm just disturbed, very disturbed to hear and read that in South Florida... Kids in schools are bullying disabled and autistic classmates 
and asking them, because of what they know about Nicholas Cruz, the shooter at Parkland, uh, asking them, are you going to be the next school shooter? That is just, that is awful. And how does a little kid absorb that? How does a little kid deal with that? How does a little kid do anything but be afraid after hearing that? Barbara Coloroso joins me on The Roy Green Show. She's an international parenting and bullying expert. I'm sure you're aware of Barbara. One of her books is The Bully, The Bullied, and The Bystander. Barbara, hi. Thanks for taking the time. Hi, Roy. Thank you for having me. What do you make of this? Well, as a special ed teacher and as a parent and uh, just as a human being, it's galling to me. Uh, Anyone can be targeted, but kids who have special needs or kids who are somewhat different from other kids are at high risk for being targeted. They're more likely to be targeted than to bully anybody. Um, They may be striking back. And the sad thing is, if we overlook the verbal and the social bullying that they have to experience, being called names, being asked if you're going to be the next school shooter, or the shunning and the rumor and the gossip, when they can't take it anymore, they tend to strike back, and they'll hit back, and they're the ones who get in trouble, mm-hmm. because we as educators and parents and other people in the community have failed to recognize the seriousness of verbal and relational bullying, which can be devastating to young people, and especially kids with special needs, um, because they often have uh, some difficulties with social skills and social relationships. Uh, so. We have to be very tuned in as adults, but also work with our own children uh, and talk to them about uh, the fact that each one of us is unique. I, I talk about Martin Buber, I and thou. I'm unique and you're unique, and we have a common humanity. The problem in bullying is I'm unique and you're an it. When I call you names, uh, racial names or racist names or sexist names or sexual names, and those are different, Um, to dehumanize you. Um, It's a short walk from hateful rhetoric to hate crime. Yeah, and you Um, you know, there's another aspect of this that that is also disturbing, and uh, that is that some of the survivors of the Parkland shooting have been attacked on social media, and they've been told, look, you bullied Nicholas Cruz, and so you bear some level of responsibility for what he did. And uh, I'd like your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, um, it was the same with the Phoebe Prince case, where she was horribly tormented, and the, the kids, after she committed suicide, did were held to account, but not for her suicide. Mm-hmm. And people said to me, um, but why shouldn't they be accountable? Well, suicide's complicated. School shootings are complicated. However, I can promise you that had a kid not like Phoebe Prince not been targeted, relentlessly those six months. We don't know if she would have committed suicide or not, but I can guarantee you her life wouldn't have been as miserable had she not been targeted. And that's what kids have to be accountable for, is did I make anybody miserable? And some kids, they're at the end of their fuse. And so, yes, we have to be kind. However, in uh, my latest uh, excerpt from one of my, uh, it's called an ARIA for ASCD, I talk about the fact that we cannot tell young people that if you're kind to somebody, they won't become a school shooter. 
Um, and if somebody's being mean and cruel to you, and you're being asked to be kind to them, I believe we as adults have an ob- obligation to recognize this mean and cruel for what it truly is, a kid needing help, needing therapeutic intervention, and needing to be held accountable for their behavior. Um, I, I think we do more harm. I, I, it's important that we teach young people to be kind to one another. But to put the onus on them that had you not done this or had you been kinder to this kid, he wouldn't have been a school shooter mm-hmm. um, because it's simply not true. And it's so unfair. Uh, it's, well, it is. And to put a guilt trip on them, how about we as adults taking a real strong look at uh, how are we behaving? You see, bullying's learned. You have to be taught to be mean. So how do you treat hired help? How do you treat somebody moving through the grocery store slower than you'd like them to? How do you treat a, a young person you see who obviously has autism? Um, do you skirt around them, or can you give them a smile, give them a, a, a hug, and let them know we're here? We're all here for one another. Um, and how do you treat the bigoted relative at the family gathering? Can you call them on it? Can you call them on their bigoted and racist and sexist comments in front of your children, even when your mother says, look, he's old. Old is never an excuse. I'm 70. Old is never an excuse for bigotry and hatred. So in other words, um, be, an adult, be an adult. Be an adult. Be an adult. When, Take charge. And when, mom, and when mom says, but he's old, I have to say, in front of my children, mm-hmm. I don't ever want my children to believe that those kind of comments are ever acceptable. Now, i got to tell you, in my country right now, um, we don't have some great role models uh, right now, and our kids are exposed to some pretty heavy-duty garbage uh, in terms of how we call one another names, how we denigrate other human beings, how we make uh, other whole groups of people into an it. You know, I, in my genocide book, I talk about the fact that it is a short walk from hateful words to hate crimes to crimes against humanity. And, you know, we're starting on that path, and we have to, to say, wait a minute, we got to take some steps back here. All and right. if we want our kids to be kind and caring and sensitive, we also have to teach them how to stand up and report when somebody is being mean yeah, and cruel and we, to and anyone. And at, the, and at the school level, we, I talked with a previous guest about this, the school boards will often uh, say, or a leader of the school board will say, well, we'll do a study, we'll talk to people, we'll file a report, and then the study is never done, the people aren't talked to, and you never see the report. Barbara, thank you so much. It's always oh, great speaking thank with you. you. We have to take action now. We have to care about each one of the people that we come in contact with. We are I and thou and our common humanity. Thank you, Barb. Thank you. Take care. Barbara Coloroso on The Roy Green Show. Let me read you this. It was in the New York Times by Isabel Robinson earlier in the week. My first interaction with Nicholas Cruz happened when I was in seventh grade. I was eating lunch with my friends, most likely discussing One Direction or Ed Sheeran, when I felt a sudden pain in my lower back. The force of the blow knocked the wind out of my 90-pound body. Tears stung my eyes. I turned around and saw him smirking. I'd never seen this boy before, but I would never forget his face. His eyes were lit up with a sick, twisted joy as he watched me cry. The apple that he'd thrown at my back rolled slowly along the tiled floor. A cafeteria aide rushed over and asked me if I was okay. I don't remember if Mr. Cruz was confronted over his actions, But in my 12-year-old naivete, I trusted that the adults around me would take care of the situation. Five years later, hiding in a dark closet inside Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, 
I would discover just how wrong I was. I'm not writing this piece to malign Nicholas Cruz any more than he already has been. I have faith that history will condemn him for his crimes. I'm writing this because of the disturbing number of comments I've read that go something like this. Maybe if Mr. Cruz's classmates and peers had been a little nicer to him, the shooting at Stoneman Douglas never would have occurred. This deeply dangerous sentiment expressed under the walk-up-not-out hashtag implies the acts of school violence can be prevented if students befriend disturbed and potentially dangerous classmates. The idea that we are to blame, even implicitly, for the murders of our friends and teachers is a slap in the face of all Stoneman Douglas victims and survivors. A year after I was assaulted by Mr. Cruz, I was assigned to tutor him through my school's peer counseling program. Being a peer counselor was the first real responsibility I'd ever had, my first glimpse of adulthood, and I took it very seriously. Despite my discomfort, I sat down with him alone. I was forced to endure his cursing me out and ogling my chest until the hour-long session ended. When I was done, I felt a surge of pride for having organized his binder and helping him with his homework. Looking back, I'm horrified. I now understand that I was left unassisted with a student who had a known history of rage and brutality. Like many pre-teenage and teenage girls, I possessed and still to an extent possess a strong desire to please. I strive to win the praise of the adults in my life and long to be seen as mature beyond my years. I would have done almost anything to win the approval of my teachers. This is not to say that children should reject their more socially awkward or isolated peers, not at all. As a former peer counselor and current teacher's assistant, I strongly believe in and have seen the benefits of reaching out to those who need kindness most. But students should not be expected to cure the ills of our genuinely troubled classmates or even our friends, because we first and foremost go to school to learn. The implication that Mr. Cruz's mental health problems could have been solved if only he'd been loved more by his fellow students is both a gross misunderstanding of how these diseases work and a dangerous suggestion that puts children on the front line. It is not the obligation of children to befriend classmates who've demonstrated aggressive, unpredictable, or violent tendencies. It is the responsibility of the school administration and guidance departments to seek out those students and get them the help that they need, even if it's extremely specialized attention that cannot be provided at the same institution. No amount of kindness or compassion alone would have changed the person that Nicholas Cruz is and was, or the horrendous actions he perpetrated. That is a weak excuse for the failures of our school system, our government, and our gun laws. My little sister is now the age I was when I was left alone with Mr. Cruz, anxious and defenseless. The thought of her being put in the same situation that I was fills me with rage. I hope that she will never know the fear that I have become so accustomed to in the past month. The slightest unexpected sound makes my throat constrict and my neck hairs curl. I beg her to trust her gut whenever she feels unsafe, and I demand that the adults in her life protect her. Isabel Robinson is a senior at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Oh, I want you to hear this. Go ahead, play it, play it. Doug Ford wants to take a bulldozer to a province that has worked so hard to get to this place. I'm surprised that the, the finance minister and, and the premier are up here saying, we're giving away free cars. We're going to pay your mortgage. You get a free car. You get a free car. You get a free car. That's next on their agenda. Okay, so there they are, the, uh, the, the stars of the show. Two of them, anyway. Went in Ford. Andrew Horvath is part of the uh, equation. 
But how good are your math skills, ladies and gentlemen? Just do a, a, a little uh, addition here, would you please? $822 million plus $575 million plus $800 million plus $2.1 billion plus $2.2 billion plus $1 billion plus $650 million plus $100 million plus $300 million plus $1.8 billion plus $2.3 billion. Yeah. It doesn't matter that you didn't add it up. There was a lot of billions and a lot of multiples of millions, and that is what the Ontario Premier and her finance minister promised in the budget a couple of days ago, the provincial budget. $312 billion, I think it is, that the province is in debt, the, the largest subnational debt in the world. And for some reason, some reason, this stuff appears to work. I was looking at some polling information. 24% liked what was in the budget in Ontario. It's like forum research. 24% liked it. 44% disapproved of it. One out of four, <laughs> one out of four people said, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's good. I like it. You do realize that they don't have the money. You do realize they're massively in debt. You do realize you will pay for this, all of it. You will pay for the debt, the $312 billion, which is expected to be uh, $400 billion pretty soon. You'll pay for it. Your kids will pay for it. Your grandkids will pay for it. Your great-grandkids will pay for it. But there's a grinning premier and a happy finance minister They've more than doubled the debt of the province of Ontario since the Liberals have been in power. Now, it's not just them. If you're in Alberta, you have an election coming up next year, somewhere between the 1st of March and May the 31st. And you know, you know, Madame Notley is going to pull the same stunt. They will promise you this and that. They may, in fact, do pretty much a copy of the Ontario budget promise. Some different numbers, but, you know, if this seems to work for wind, then Notley will try probably the same stuff. Oh, did we mention that there's another election in 2019 in October? The 21st of October? The federal election? And with Mr. Trudeau's polling numbers, we talked with Daryl Bricker from Ipsos, was it last week or week before last? About Mr. Trudeau's numbers dropping. The, you know, <laughs> even though they have uh, increased their projected deficits in multiples, and even though the federal debt, the national debt is massive and growing larger, and even though interest rates are climbing, and they'll, you know, they'll promise you a whole bunch of stuff, in the multiples of billions as well. And you will pay for it. Your kids will pay for it. Your grandchildren will pay for it. Their kids will pay for it. And probably two or three or four or five or six more generations after that. In a country that shouldn't be a dime in debt. And who do they constantly turn into the hydrant? The small business community of Canada. 
the people who do most of the hiring. They're always on the receiving end of either government-expressed nastiness or government programs that reach into the pockets of the entrepreneurs who, if they make a profit, they reinvest the profit in their business. But the politicians who want to be elected, particularly those on the left, will tell you, well, those terrible business people, you know, they have yachts and Ferraris. And they have islands right next to Uncle K. Oh, yeah. Dan Kelly is probably wincing now. It kind of feels like a toothache, doesn't it, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> well, if I could disagree with you, Roy, I would. It's, uh, it, these are some worrisome times. Governments of, you know, those of us that care about uh, governments, uh, government spending, ensuring that uh, the government is kept small and reasonable, ensuring that our grandkids are not going to be left with, you know, massive amounts of debt, have had a pretty good run. Governments of, really, of all political stripes, all political parties, Tory, Liberal, NDP, really started to, to get with the program and understand that, that deficit financing is not a good idea, that that paying down debt once in a while is a good idea but it seems that that has uh, has been those hard earned uh, hard learned lessons have been largely forgotten in the last couple of months last couple of years Dan Kelly is the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business they represent the small and medium sized business community in this country and they are the number one employers they employ over 50% of people who have jobs in Canada so to keep these businesses in business means that we will keep so many millions of jobs uh, available. Dan, what if uh, what if your your members suddenly decided to be as fiscally responsible as governments are? Yeah, you know, it is deeply troubling. It is when when we see what happens. Uh, and, and you can borrow examples from personal finance, from business finance, uh, even other things in, in one's personal life to, to, to draw some pretty clear analogies of why what we're doing in Canada, what many provincial governments and what our federal government is doing is such a bad idea. Uh, I, I just, Roy, I mean, forget the, the, the small business owner right now, but I'll, I'll give you a personal example. I just, over the last couple of years, lost uh, almost 50 pounds. And that was a hard thing to do. It wow. took a lot of work uh, for me to do that, both uh, exercise and, and dieting. And I know that if I go out to a restaurant, I'm here in Vancouver visiting family for the Easter, if I go to an ice buffet and, have a, and, and decide to eat a little bit more than I normally would, that, that things are not going to be a problem. I can, I can get through that and, and get back on track the next day and, and all will be well. But if I do that again and again, if I do that every day or every month, I know that I'm going to start stacking the weight back on and loss and, 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 and all the hard-earned battles <laughs> are going to be gone. And this is what governments are doing. They, you know, I think Canadians understood during the last federal election campaign when Trudeau said that he was going to run uh, three short-term small deficits in order to, to give the economy a bit of a boost. Canadians said, you know what, okay, we've, we've managed through this pretty well. That seems like a reasonable plan. There's no long-term uh, long-term plans associated with deficit financing, so let's do it. And and that would have been fine. I don't even think my members were ter- terribly freaked out about that. Who and they are uh, more hawkish about deficit spending than many. But that's not what's happening, and that's not what's happening at the provincial level. I mean, gosh, the the provincial governments, uh, the provincial government in Ontario, 
finally started to get the deficit somewhat under control. That was, that was debatable. The Government Accountability Office said that, in fact, the budget wasn't balanced in Ontario. And then on the even election campaign, the government says, hey, you know what, let's try to, uh, let's try to score points with another political party's supporters by forgetting about deficits altogether, ditching that plan, and, and ramping up spending on absolutely everything that moves. And the question that I think politicians have to ask, Canadians need to ask, and I think you asked moments ago, is this spending priority, and there are many, is it important enough that I'm willing to pass the bill for that to my grandkids. And if we're not willing to say yes, that this $2 billion for that or this $5 billion for this other idea is worth giving the bill to your grandchildren, then maybe you've got to figure out another way to get there. And, and I don't think we're asking that question often enough. We're not. And Dan, if it weren't election time, you wouldn't be seeing these things. This is carefully planned. They knew they were in the hole as far as polling was concerned. They knew the only way out was uh, smoke and mirrors, and so here came the smoke, and there are the mirrors, and here are the numbers, and here are the plans, and if you buy them, you know, I, I won't even go back to that old cliche about Florida, but if it, it's not just Ontario. It will happen in Alberta. It will happen in, uh, in our federal election twice next year. It will happen when Mr. Horgan and Mr. Weaver decide they're no longer best friends. It will happen in British Columbia as well. And people are going to have to learn to realize we don't have the money. And if you borrow, there's interest to be paid and interest rates are climbing. And so what you owe today, if you don't make a substantial payment later in the day, is going to be significantly more tomorrow because of the amount of the debt that's involved. Plus, Add to that the fact that individual Canadians are living with record high personal debt. This stuff has to stop. And it's not, it's not responsible for Premier Wynne or Premier Notley to come or Justin Trudeau to come or Premier Horgan to come to pull the same stunt uh, any more than it is for the individual person to say, yeah, you know, I don't care how much it costs. How can I make the payments? You're absolutely right. And in fact, my worry is even deeper than that, though, and that is, you know, yes, this is an incredibly cynical pre-election move of the Ontario government to do this, and you're quite right that that could be replicated uh, and has been replicated, uh, sadly, in provinces across the country. But what worries me even more than that is the fact that I think that this is starting to become a practice that forget an election, governments are starting to say, well, why is it so important? Why, why are we worried about deficits in the first place? And that could then last beyond election time. I look, for example, just, just uh, in the last week or so, uh, the Newfoundland and Labrador budget came out. And that's a problem, province that's got some deep, deep-rooted problems. And, and both political parties in, in Newfoundland and Labrador have, have a lot to, uh, to be blamed. The Tories uh, certainly were, not, <laughs> were no better uh, in terms of managing their finance than, than the Liberals were. So this is not a partisan thing. But in Newfoundland and Labrador now, already, uh, the, uh, the cost to service the debt is greater than the cost of providing education in Newfoundland and Labrador. And it's approaching the size of providing health care funding to Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. Just to service the debt. Just to service the debt, not to pay any of it back. <laughs> and that is a sneak preview of what is coming to yeah. province after province after province. Dan, let me, let, me get, let, me get you to, let me get it's you to hold on. Political parties that want to spend more, but that spending is not going to become possible. It's not going to be possible because we're going to be spending all of our dough 
just to manage the debt for what we've had from the past. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Uh, The government budget, the uh, Ontario budget, is going to add some $6.7 billion to the deficit. And uh, reading from CFIB, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, um, the deficit will be driven by more than $20 billion in spending over the next three years. The government doesn't plan to get the books balanced until 24-25. The proposed deficit will add more than $30 billion to Ontario's provincial debt and increase annual interest payments on the debt to $17 billion per year by 24-25. That's the point you're just making, Dan Kelly. Yeah, so you know that that's why this should not be a partisan thing, you know. And I think the Globe had an editorial on this as well. I mean, if you care about public spending, you want to make sure that you're doing it in a careful way, so that you're not paying giant deficit, that you're not spending giant interest payments, sending them to billionaires, and then not having money to pay for social programs. If you're conservative, or if you're if you care about tax reductions, you want to keep, create some capacity to do that. You got to make sure you're not spending billions of dollars in interest payments to balance the book. And and you know this is again you see the the, the Republicans in the U.S. Uh, spending vastly more than than the the government is taking in. So uh, this this crosses po- the political spectrum as well. But it is important stuff. We've got to make sure that we are living within our means. We know that this doesn't work. If I want to go on an extra trip and I put it on my credit card. I can maybe do that once in a blue moon, but if I start doing that all the time, that's when the bills come home and the creditors start knocking at my door. Dan, in the minute or so we have left, there's also the angle or the perspective here that needs to be remembered that as governments uh, raise their their debt, they're also going to raise taxes, and because we're going to have to pay for it, and taxes will increase on your members, the small business community of this country, which drives the economy by the the jobs they create. So this is not this is also something that has to be remembered. They're going to put people out of business. You're absolutely right. We know that today's today's deficits are tomorrow's taxes and those taxes increasingly governments are turning to SMEs, small medium-sized firms to to pick up the tab. Uh, and by doing that, they make their own job harder because then of course there isn't the economic activity that generates the tax revenue in the first place. So yeah. this is all a system, and, and sadly, government, after learning that lesson across the political spectrum, seems to be forgetting it. Always great speaking with you, Dan. Thank you so much for taking the time on the Easter weekend. Anytime, Roy. Bye-bye. Dan Kelly. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Dan McTague is with us on the show on this Saturday before April Fool's Day. <laughs> Why is, that, why is that appropriate? <laughs> I have to tell you, Dan's been a good friend of mine for a long time, and we've been good friends. And he was a liberal member of parliament, and I knew that I could always get, I could always get, I, well, sort of the truth on, uh, <laughs> I, I got Dan's truth, which was better than the liberal truth, uh, <laughs> the party truth. But I, I knew that I could count on you to tell me what was going on. And he didn't give away, you know, uh, company secrets. But you were always straightforward. And now I have a qu- straightforward question for you. Why are we paying so much for gasoline? Why are uh, we in such trouble financially? What the hell is going on, Mr. McTague? Answer that, please. Uh, four things. 
and in no short order and no particular order. Um, the first, of course, being that oil is about $17 a barrel more expensive than it was this time last year. So that adds about $0.07 cents, uh, to a litre uh, of gasoline. We uh, also know that refiners uh, have been doing very well in Canada, adding an extra, we'll call it four, four and a half cents above what they normally get in terms of uh, the spread between crude that they buy and the gasoline that they produce. And of course, there is uh, uh, the other factor, which is uh, as long as we continue to have blockages in our pipelines, selling oil to the rest of the world, the Canadian dollar takes a hit. In other words, while the Americans are getting 65 bucks a barrel for their oil, we're lucky to get 40. And that differential uh, leads to a not inconsequential decline in the value of the Canadian dollar. We should be near par with the Americans. Nothing's going to change. That cost is about 15 cents a litre. Right. Nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to change. There's no impetus on this side of the border to make things change, make things different. Plus, we have economic, not quite economic warfare, but threats of economic warfare that are flying back and forth between British Columbia and Alberta. And now Saskatchewan's gotten engaged with the the premier of Saskatchewan saying that if British Columbia continues to delay the construction of the Northern Gateway um, uh, extension, that... uh, Saskatchewan will take economic re- have well, they, economic recourse that it's going, going to access. And they should. Uh, part of Saskatchewan's uh, strength is not only the, the oil that it produces, but also the fuel that it uh, it upgrades, it refines. It, it, you know, it's a, it, Lloyd Minster, which of course is a city shared between both Alberta and Saskatchewan, uh, is, uh, is, is chock full of uh, potential oil that uh, the world definitely wants, especially the United States. Uh, but as long as we continue to resist, well... Canadians can start staring down the barrel of what a $1 trillion debt looks like. Now, if you told me, Roy, you know, 15, 18, 20 years ago when uh, we had our own, I was in Parliament at the time, we had wind up with a trillion dollar debt, I would have said, well, who dropped the ball? And frankly, you're going to continue to accumulate debts, hurt the provincial economies, hurt jobs, uh, continue to hammer Canadians, not just in terms of those driving and not driving, but the economy as a whole, raising debts because you can't raise revenue when you're not selling enough oil, our number one product in the world. So I'm not at all surprised that uh, Premier Mo has uh, thrown down the gauntlet. What it surprises me is that Ontario should be just as angry, as should Quebec and many other provinces. The simple reason, what's good for the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline is actually good for the rest of the country. You don't have to believe me. The Conference Board of Canada said that two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, People have got to recognize and wake up and smell the proverbial coffee unless they want to wind up in a country that has far less than what we have today, then continue protesting ridiculously oil that would otherwise come from foreign countries right. that don't respect the environment, much less human. All right, my friend, I, we've run out of time. It's been a little bit of a, not much time today, but I thank you, and we're, we're going to have, you and I are going to have a political discussion on air. Not Let's on. do that, Roy. In the very near future. Happy Easter to you and all your listeners. Thanks, thanks, Dan, and same to you Bye. and yours. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. And I'm receiving uh, emails all afternoon, so are you going to buy it? Leave me alone. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> At the end of uh, the first hour of the show, not everybody heard this, I, uh, I read a piece that you'll find on my blog on my uh, webpage, RoyGreenShow.com, and the headline is, or the lead is, what the algorithms really know about me. And it's about, you know, I was looking at a news story, and I popped all these car ads because a little while earlier I'd been nostalgically surfing through cars that I'd owned over the years. Now, I'm a car freak. It's been my 
overriding passion all my life, and I've owned well, well over 30 of them. And uh, so it, it showed me the 2019 Corvette ZR1, 775 horsepower, 210 mile an hour top speed, which means, as I wrote, it'll run alongside Sebastian Vettel's Ferrari on a straightaway and give up nothing. And the starting price is 118000 bucks. So this is what they do to you. They knew what I'd done. They knew that I'd been looking at cars, so up pops their stuff. And tucked away is a 2007 Shelby uh, 500, GT500, with uh, 40 grand. And uh, so they're, they've got the really expensive one. Then they've got the one that says, you say to yourself, well, if I trade mine in, you know, once you cr- start crunching the numbers, you're toast. Am I buying the ZR1? No. As I pointed out, even with my trade-in, it would mean 60 months at 2000 bucks a month to finance it. Oh, my God. I sound like somebody running your government. Um, speaking of governments, our federal justice minister, Jody Raybould-Wilson, um, introduced a, a significant piece of legislation. Jody Wilson-Raybould, get it right, Roy. Um, significant piece of legislation, Bill C-75, which significantly, in some areas, changes Canada's criminal justice system. So the only person to go to for an interpretation of what this really all means is Scott Newark. And Scott is, of course, a regular contributor to this program, former Alberta Crown Attorney and Senior Policy Advisor to a Federal Minister for Public Safety, now a Security and Justice Policy Analyst and Adjunct Professor at Simon Fraser University. So, Scott, um, I, I had I grabbed a couple of things, but I'd... I really want to hear from you. Is this a is this good legislation? Is it is it self-serving legislation? Is it bad legislation? Well, first of all, I think it's a good idea that it's going to criminalize um, uh, car zombie purchasers. Oh, sorry, no. Um, actually, <laughs> Not my fault. Um, the uh, ever the optimist, uh, Roy. There are some good things in the bill, in my opinion, but there are some things that I think are uh, alarming. Uh, in theory, I think the general purpose of the bill is to try to improve the justice system efficiency, which has been under uh, deserved criticism for the last couple of years. Um, but it's a very, very complex bill. It's about 300 pages long. I've just finished my first go-through of it uh, earlier today. And it's like a lot of things in the in the justice system legislation. Uh, you got to read the fine print. You're going to have to see how it plays out. Uh, to see exactly what the changes are and how they will ultimately be implemented and what the consequences will be. Um, but let me, uh, the, the first thing that caught my attention, uh, actually two things that caught my attention. One was that the bill was introduced Thursday afternoon before a holiday weekend as Parliament was breaking for a two-week holiday. That's generally a sign that the government doesn't want a whole lot of attention being paid to the, uh, to the bill. The other one that I, I, I noticed uh, right away was in um, all of the different sections, and because of the kinds of changes that are made in them, there's just uh, you know uh, section after section after section of the criminal code that's changed. But one of the things that takes up a major part of the changes is actually, believe it or not, changing the wording from uh, that is currently used in the criminal code and has been used for you know a hundred years. Uh, that is sort of the generic language of anyone who does, you know, da da da, da. We're changing the word from anyone to any person. 
As in people kind. As in people kind, yes. So uh, that caught my attention a little bit, but let me start uh, with uh, what I think are some of the positive changes. Uh, Can I ask uh, you first? Let me ask you first, because the the, the attention a few weeks ago, you and I spoke about it, the whole country was speaking about it, was the criticism that the justice minister and the prime minister seemed to unload on the jury selection system, and that's because of the trial in Saskatchewan. Yeah, that's in there. uh, What they've done is they've taken away the uh, peremptory challenges. That's the old uh, historical tradition whereby both the Crown and defense lawyers could challenge a, a defined number of uh, potential jurors without giving any, any reason whatsoever. It wasn't for any kind of cause. They could just do it because they felt like it. And that was, if you remember our discussions, that was one of the complaints that it was, oh, so terrible that that's what the Crown had done in the uh, Colton Bushy case. It turns out that that was not actually accurate, but you're quite correct. Both the Prime Minister and Justice Minister essentially jumped on board that criticism of the justice system. And so that is in the legislation. It's getting rid of the uh, peremptory challenges. I'm not as bothered by that because I think, you know, if you've got a reason for challenging somebody as a juror, tell me what it is and we'll make a judgment based on an assessment. Well, how, would it, how might it have changed the, the selection of that and the, the eventual outcome of the jury selection in, in, uh, in Saskatchewan? How, how might these changes have changed how that jury would have Based on what I've composed? read of what actually happened, it wouldn't have changed it at all. Okay. But, but let me just, there's another uh, development that's in the bill that I think is alarming because it creates this new power for a judge to, quote, set aside a juror. In other words, somebody who hasn't been called specifically to be uh, questioned in terms of whether they're going to be a juror. And to do so, uh, I think the phrase that they use is in uh, advancement of the, uh, uh, the administration of justice. And that, I think, I have a, a, an alarming feeling about that. Um, I think that is uh, the, um, the notion that... Uh, you know, judges will be setting aside people so that they can be thereafter added to the jury. In other words, if they don't have the right enough people, they can then add these people. And that will be done based on, you know, if somebody's Indigenous, so that they will use that tool to try to increase, if somebody's in a, is an Indigenous offender, to increase that uh, likelihood that there's going to be Indigenous people on the jury. And that, I think, is a very dangerous path uh, for us to go down. It, it's, it's discrimination. And look, you know, the metric of success for us should be equality, not discrimination. And um, I, I think it, you know, people are not before the justice system because, for example, they're indigenous or they're black, uh, no matter what the sort of politically uh, correct people may say. They're there because what they're alleged to have done and their background, their ethnic or their cultural background may be relevant to what they ultimately did, but it's not why they're before the justice system, and our justice system should be one system for all people. And the judge and should, the judge should not be looking at so-called vulnerable communities then. Yes. You can take that into account in different factors and things like sentencing and you know, how you're going to deal with people at different stages in the system. We've always had that. But I, I must admit, I'm a little bit alarmed that we seem to be going down that road of what we, uh, you know, so many people, including, as you correctly point out, the prime minister and the justice minister did right after the Bushy verdict. That sounds a little bit like they are trying to follow up on their we-can-do-better statements. Yeah, I, also, I think what it uh, plays to politically is their, uh, frankly, pandering to the uh, indigenous communities and to show that they've actually, quote, done something. 
But that's why I say you're going to have to wait and see how this actually plays out mm-hmm. to see uh, whether or not this is a meaningless change or it's actually taking us down a path that's not productive. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Back with Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney in Alberta, adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University, and national security specialist, also senior policy advisor for a federal minister for public safety. So the C-75 then, Scott, let me go get back to you and, and have you explain to us what are some of the other aspects of this legislation that are going to be that have the potential to make a significant change? Where's the good? Where's the not so good? You know, just work work it out for okay. us. Uh, first of all, let me just uh, touch on the point that you made when you were closing in the last uh, segment about the the justice system and public confidence. Right, Doug Walsh. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, and it's true, it's, it's actually part of our culture, the uh, 13th century, they were called the king's courts for exactly the reasons that you described. But I, ju- I just want to make the point. Our criminal justice system is not the private preserve of lawyers and judges and criminals. It belongs to us. Okay, it's a public system, and the public can make improvements to it by being aware of what's going on. And why, it, in my opinion, it's why you know you and I have had these conversations for 25 years plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, the work that you do, actually, in helping getting the information out to people, is so important in making these kinds of changes, including even on really complicated legislation like this. But let me go to the, uh, to the good news. Um, a big issue, of course, has been the inefficiency of our justice system, and thanks to the Supreme Court of Canada, that recent Jordan decision, they're saying, oh, delay is you know, such a problem. Well, take a look in the mirror, uh, judges. You're the reason for much, much of the delay. But this bill will actually do some things to streamline the process. It's going to increase the summary conviction penalty that's the lower kind of offenses the more serious or it's the same offense but the more serious uh, uh, kind of it is called an indictable offense the lower kind is summary conviction it used to have a, uh, a, a maximum sentence of around six months or sometimes higher it will now be two years less one day what that means is that there will be more trials that will be or the, the prosecutions will be done summarily which means it will be done in provincial court, which means, means we won't have the duplication that we currently have in uh, preliminary inquiries and subsequent trials in, in superior court. Part of that as well, too, the, the bill is going to um, get rid of preliminary inquiries unless the offense is one that has a life sentence. Now, I have a feeling this is going to draw a charter challenge, but again, it should have the same uh, impact, which is to reduce the number of uh, duplicate uh, hearings through preliminary inquiries. Uh, third major part of that, all on the same theme as well, too, it's going to create what are called hybrid offenses. Some offenses in the past would have been just straight indictable, which meant that you would have a preliminary plus a superior court trial. They're now, with all of these amendments, they're going to create these hybrid offenses where the Crown can proceed summarily, which means it stays in provincial court. With the new penalty, it can be up to two years less a day, which means there's going to be less duplication. Theoretically, things should move faster. Now, having said that, that also means, and I think those are very positive uh, changes. I've been recommending stuff like that for years. Um, That means that there's going to be a shift of activity, an increase in uh, cases in the provincial courts, which means there needs to be adequate funding provided, because you can't just, you know, change the system and not figure out what the results are going to be, you've got to fund it to make sure that it works the way that you actually intended. Um, one other one that's there that I have a bad feeling about is there's something they're going to change the uh, process for people because so many offenses are now coming in. 
of people who are on, you know, bail or probation, and they violate the terms of their release. They're called administration of justice offenses. There's a new process that is going to be uh, created that I have a very bad feeling about called the judicial referral hearing, and it fe- feels to me as I read it that it's going to be like another bureaucracy to theoretically you know, expedite the processing, but it's just going to cause more delay, as is the case that's already in um, a judicial case resolution, where, in effect, you know, what we do is we have a hearing to supposedly expedite things, but it just takes longer to have done. We're going to have to see how that actually plays out, but that's one that I have a bad feeling about. Mm-hmm. How would you grade this then? If you were if you were uh, giving this a, a mark, a grade, what would it get? Um, on practical terms, probably like about 80%. Not bad. It gets rid of uh, the. Uh, it restores the victim uh, fine surcharge, and unfortunately, a really bad mistake I think is that it. Uh, allows again for that increase in, you know, the pretrial custody credit that rewards repeat offenders. Mm-hmm. But I put the little asterisk on that because of the, the stuff we talked about on the first part of the segment. If it turns out that we are, in effect, moving down this road of, you know, quotation mark, positive discrimination and not allowing our justice system to be, one, applicable to all Canadians, you know, irrespective of their culture or religion or ethnicity, um, if that does turn out to be the case, then I think that's a very big negative. I think that, torpe- that would that would torpedo any good, Scott. It would torpedo any good that might be in the legislation. Yes, longer term, yes, it would. Because if you could not, if you could not, if you wouldn't know that justice was blind, that when you go into the courtroom or when you're uh, when Absolutely. you're charged, if you don't know that you're going to receive exactly the same treatment yeah. as everyone else, and there are people who will say, "Well, that's the way it is now," yeah. you know that if you're a member of the of the majority group, you're going to get a better deal than somebody who isn't a member of the majority group. Well, That's why this. Conversely, pre- conversely, we have, a, you know, we actually have racist legislation in the requirement of a glad you report for a designated race, Aboriginal people, where there has to be a special report done and consideration taken. Based, I mean, we had the discretion to do that, and we did that all the time. But mm-hmm. it's now in law. That's what I. That's what I think. The I hear mistake you. that we've made is not recognizing and defending that the metric of success is equality. Yeah, I hear you. This was being done anyway in courts. Yes, of across course it was. Canada. It was it was it was part of the part of the system. And our system as well too, Roy, that I think we're losing on is that our officials, police officers and prosecutors, were vested with discretion and they need to use that discretion. Okay? Uh, we have become, That's why you get experienced people. Well, we have become uh, you know, they, the, the studies that was done by the Senate on the justice system delays, they said that there was a culture of delay mm-hmm. and also a culture of risk aversion. Mm-hmm. Our system was based on people who had that authority, whether they're police officers or prosecutors, to go, you know what, this guy doesn't need to be charged. They need to use that, have that discretion and use that discretion. Okay, buddy. I appreciate your time, as always, particularly right, on the weekend. Thank you. Good luck with the cars. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.